is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing the golden era of home computer games. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the second generation of video game consoles, the Intellivision, the ColecoVision, and the vaunted Atari 2600, reigned supreme as the way to enjoy computer games at home. But their technological obsolescence was starting to show, and soon they were kind of swept aside by the rise of the home computer as a gaming platform of choice. Now, home computers were a wave of microcomputers that first hit the market in the late 70s and really began to make a splash by the early 1980s. They were meant to be bought, pre-assembled, and off the shelf from a retail location, taken home, plugged in, and used. Consumers were meant to see them less as a machine for technical experts and more as an appliance to be enjoyed by anyone. And on that front, home computers sort of did a lot of work to help redefine the public's perception of computers in general and what kind of place they could occupy in a small business, in a school, or in a household. Now, these were not cheap machines. When adjusted for inflation, a lot of these systems would have cost between three and $4,000 today. So parents didn't usually buy them so they could be playthings. But the truth was, the home computer truly excelled as a gaming platform. It offered more advanced gaming experiences than your average, you know, in television that was aging in the living room. And it offered more persistent gaming experiences than arcade games, which parceled out entertainment one quarter at a time. The home computer gaming heyday was especially fun for Generation X, for whom these machines and their wonderful games landed during the formative years of their adolescence. But, you know, as with all chapters of computer game history, the rise and fall of competing platforms tends to defy clean start and stopping points. But for today's discussion, we'll be talking about a period of time that roughly runs from about 1980 or so, you know, when the Atari 8-bit family uh, began to gain traction, when the Commodore 64 kind of hit the market, to about 1990, by which time PC clones began to dominate home-based non-console computer gaming. Put another way, we're talking about platforms like the Commodore 64 and the Amiga, the Apple II series and the original Macintosh, and the Atari 400 and 800. We're talking about games that were often, but not always, played on five and a quarter inch floppies rather than on three and a half inch hard disks. And we're talking about games that were often, again, but not always, played with a keyboard and or a joystick rather than with a mouse. While some of the best games of this time enjoyed continued development on the various era of PCs and gaming consoles that followed, most did not and remain to this day more or less abandoned artifacts of a bygone age. Likewise, a lot of the great publishers of this era, we're talking Datasoft, Datamost, Infocom, Origin Systems, Accolade, Microprose, Penguin Software, Broderbund, Sierra Online, a lot of these have also sunk beneath the sands of time. Electronic Arts remains a notable exception. But this era, with all of its glorious quirks, shaped an entire generation of gamers, opening new doors to what was possible when it came to inhabiting, exploring, and conquering imaginary landscapes comprised of light and data. This generation of computer games had a massive influence on me, and it is such a thrill to talk about them now. So now that the startup disk on this thing has finished booting, let's flip the disk and press space to continue. With me today is Submersible Fighter Ace, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Basilisk Wrangler, Tom Hespos. I'm eight, comma one, baby. <laughs> and master of the rapier, longsword, and cutlass, Joe Pace. Yar, it's that promising sea dog, Bill Coffin. 
<laughs> Everyone, welcome. I honestly, I'm so thrilled about this one. I've been looking for this one for ages. Chris, let's start off with you because this is a, a game that I actually, well, actually, I love all the games we're going to have Moments of Truth on today, but this one definitely has a special place in my heart. So Chris, take it away. What's your moment of truth? My moment of truth for early PC games was Aquatron. Uh, this was a, a Defender clone, Defender, the arcade game, published in 1983 by Sierra Online. Its shtick was that instead of flying over land, this was a water world, and your, your ship was capable of submerging to, to flee flying enemies and attack the upward-firing submerged enemies. Your ship handled more slowly underwater, but you felt safer down there. It was the first side-scroller that I can recall where the playing area was more than one screen high. Mm. What made it, you know, an example of what you're talking about, that, that link between an arcade experience and a home experience was that your ship had armor and shields and, and they could be replenished by picking up the parachutes dropped by enemies. In this game, uh, you, you remember the colonists from Defender? You had to like rescue yeah. them, you know, yeah. and shoot, shoot the guys down that were trying to pick them up and then deliver them back to the ground. Uh, since there's no land here, you didn't have those guys. Instead, you had these parachuting guys that would fall down and become submerged enemies. If you picked them up, they, they'd improve your shields. And you you also had a Zeppelin-like base that you had to defend. This was your spawn point for extra lives. So if it got destroyed, you'd have to survive several levels without dying until a new one showed up and you could get an extra life. Yeah. This game was joystick compatible, but if you at all recall the 1980s Apple II joystick, uh, you'll understand why I use the keyboard. <laughs> it, it worked well enough that you know years later, when I loaded up Defender on uh, Mame, I, I found it incredibly easy to control with with a keyboard. You know, the the joystick and those widely spaced buttons from the from the arcade setup were. I mean, they were just tough to keep track of, but on a keyboard, it's just fingers. And it opened up, uh, it opened, it, it made the game much more accessible than I think it was in its arcade form. That was yeah. another way in which it made it more accessible. It had a neat feature where if you went to the top of the screen and stayed there a moment, you'd engage your hyperdrive and you could travel quickly around the planet. That's right, I forgot about that. And if you failed to engage it, I mean, you, you'd be flying around yeah, you know, zooming up and down through the atmosphere, and if if you failed to disengage it before you hit the water, you'd blow yourself up. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what was so neat was that it, it, it functioned entirely intuitively, and it was a control without a button. Yeah. You know, like that 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 was that was something kind of I think different for a time. Yeah. Eventually, you started to see a functionally similar thing in racing yeah. games where you had boost strips. Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah essentially it was the same thing but this is this is where it started i think yeah the game came out on uh atari uh the atari 400 800 series and and on apple i'm not sure if it ever came out on commodore but the apple II version sounded exactly like defender uh, to the extent that today it would definitely be bring a lawsuit but you know yeah back in the 80s software development was like the wild west um, yeah, like kind of wise. The Apple II version was prettiest, but uh, enough uh, enemies could still appear on screen to create like significant slowdown. 
And it felt more like a feature than a limitation because that let you escape those elaborate bullet traps that, yeah. that this, this kind of shooter creates. It, it almost felt like the game would go into bullet time. Yeah. When it got real frantic. You could still control more slowly, but it, it, it really worked. It made it made you feel like a superhero. Yeah. Um, you remember how uh, enemies and defenders would explode into pixels? You know, just... Yeah. Aquatron was like that, but more so that contributed to to that slowdown uh the the atari version was slower and uglier as was usually the case um i just like to point that out because atari (laughs) (laughs) the rivalries are just intense man like yeah yeah, it's 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 the same way in my neighborhood where like you know you got an atari guy and like a c64 guy they would constantly be comparing (laughs) oh yeah yeah the music and everything oh man karateka is so much better on commodore you know like (laughs) Oh God. <laughs> yeah. yeah this is the age when 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 the gaming started to get very tribal you know in a way that it didn't with like the atari and ColecoVision and all that it was like oh my friend's got ColecoVision. well great i want to go over there and play games i can't play but you didn't like diss them for it but like in this era it was like people talk smack about the system you played on it was it was like dude man this thing cost thirty five hundred dollars i can't just buy a second one you know <laughs> yeah you know, Aqu- aquatron it didn't offer many new ideas but it was a better version of what had come before. It was prettier, it was more playable, and it was yeah. more fun. Yeah, for me, this is my moment of truth, not because of the best game ever. Uh, there are, uh, I've, I've got a list of games in a, a WordPad document on my screen right now that's uh, voluminous, but it was so playable. I, yeah. I was still playing this game from 1983 in 1990. Yeah. As a freshman in college. Well, speaking about that, I would be remiss to let this segment go without telling my Aquatron story, which was I played Aquatron hard, you know, in high school and I get to college and on my freshman dorm hall is this guy, Chris from Virginia. And it turns out he and I have a whole lot in common and we have a lot of common interests and we, we were pretty, you know, thick as thieves, pretty damn close. And I was actually hanging out in his room more than my own for a good portion of the year. And Chris brought his Apple IIe to school. I'm like, hot damn let's do this and you're like i got aquatron aquatron move out the way and one night i was playing it and it was like i just had one of those like remember that game where i defeated the entire soviet union at spy hunter all right it was like that with aquatron this was a zone game bill this was one of those games where you could get into the zone yeah and play forever yeah and one of the things that the game tried to break you on is like every certain number of levels there'd be what they called an interceptor level what happened is it would just be like all these enemy fighters just kept coming one after another after another and it felt like this endless wave where eventually you fought against them until they overwhelmed you and destroyed you but i had figured out this way that i could just like keep going in one direction and like interceptor alert interceptor alert and they keep coming in but they kept coming in behind me because i was i just was hell-bent for leather and the 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 screen kind of wrapped around right so eventually i would wait until the whole interceptor level just like exhausted itself and then I turn back around and fly into them and just let them have what the cannon just wipe out the whole wave. And I, I could survive. That was the first time I ever survived an interceptor level. I'm like, wait a minute. And I like broke the game and just, I just kept getting level. Cause if you survived a level like that, you got an extra ship. Well, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't die in this level. So I'm playing and I look up and it's like 
one thirty in the morning and you and your roommate are dead asleep. Like you're too polite to kick me out of your room, which you really should have done. I'm sitting there playing, playing Aquatron unstopped. I'm like, I could be here all night long. I'm like, I got to go. Like, I just got to, <laughs> I could get a world records game, but Chris deserves his sleep and I'm being a really terrible guest. I got to move right now. And I felt, I felt both exalted and ashamed at the same, at the same time. This game has that flow state like Tetris yeah. where you can play and time goes away. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, well, that, that's the sign of a good video game, right? Well, it, it really is. And, and you know, on the Apple IIe, I played a, a bunch of arcade ports, right? Like a lot of the game system this time, they had a lot of arcade ports. But because of the technical limitations of the computers, none of them ever really fully captured the true arcade experience. Whatever arcade game you played on one of these machines, it never quite felt exactly the same as what you got in the arcade, which is fine. They're still fun games. I played games like Robotron 2084. I played that one hard. Joust was a really good port for the 2E. Spy Hunter was a good port. Gauntlet, Rampage, Tapper, Moon Patrol. Like I played all those arcade games a lot. But Aquatron was the first arcade type game built for that computer that it delivered to me a level of action and excitement that was equal to, if not greater than what I could currently get at the arcade. And yeah. that's what, that's what blew me away about Aquatron. It's like, it didn't feel like it was an also ran versus what I could pay for a quarter at a time. It felt like there's nothing in the arcade that can match Aquatron. Joe and Tom, I gather you never played it. <laughs> you know, C64. I, I, I don't remember that one being on Commodore. Uh, I don't think it was. Yeah. It's a shame. Like I did play games from other systems, but that's just one I never ran into. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was before my time in some ways because, like, I'm a touch younger, so like my Atari era lasted a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And by the time I came in, it was Commodore. You know, it was like '83. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? Commodore had moved into a different level of of some of the games yeah. that they were putting out, and so I think I just, you know, I think I just missed that in my my window. Yeah. Well. You missed out on something awesome because I love it because Aquatron is like, it sounds like what if you made a, a member of the bad guys from the Transformers who could summon fish, right? <laughs> that would be. Oh man, Aquatron. Okay. Okay. That... All right. <laughs> he went there. Okay, fine. <laughs> so now Aquatron was really super cool because also amongst my circle of Apple IIe playing friends. Maybe some of them had Aquatron. Not a lot of people really geeked out on Aquatron. Like, even amongst my brothers, like they were like, oh, you're playing an Aqua game? Yeah, man, I'm playing Aquatron, back off. You know, I loved it. So it was just, I was really excited to see somebody else who actually knew the game, was good at it and appreciated it. And, and when you, I mean, you, when we're talking like, all right, what's your moment of truth? And you're like, Aquatron. I'm like, wow, man, that's like Horn of Valhalla. I can't believe I just heard that. That's fantastic. <laughs> like he called, I shall answer. <laughs> Oh. He summoned you. He did. It, it was a difficult, cho- difficult choice, though. Uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll discuss that later. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> all right. So let's move on. Tom, what's your moment of truth on on all this? And you know, I know you you were a C sixty four gamer, but the beautiful thing about the C sixty four is that a lot of the games that were there could also be found in other systems. It was such a prolific system. So I know the game you picked is a game I have also played on the Apple IIe. Ah, uh, yeah. But but I will admit, I think the C sixty four was a marginally better version than what the Apple II had to offer. So drop it on us. What is your moment of truth? Better graphics. It was a better machine overall, Bill. You're just gonna have to admit now. Oh god, I can't (laughs) believe you did that. Well, you know, the funny thing is, like, you know, by the time C64 (laughs) hit, I was in a lot of programming classes too. Yeah. And you know, of course, you know, 
before the action starts in a programming class, everybody brings out their games. So like I did have piles of Apple II games as well on, you know, their own floppies and like their own sure. stuff in my basement. So like the, the genre, you know, is not unknown to me. I have, I've, I've, you know, dabbled in it a bit, but like, yeah, that, that was one, Aquatron was just one I didn't come across. I, you know, I hear you on the replayability and honestly, like I, I had a huge list of C64 games that I had to look at to just, you know, A, refresh my memory because yeah. so many of these things are just forgotten and i'm like oh now i remember that like yeah thank you you know c64 wiki for refreshing my memory that that thing even existed uh so like, i had to go back <laughs> and review a lot of these things but replayability i think was like one of the yeah. things that you know that really mattered you know i would even play the game that i chose today and i actually played it through a browser because like now you can do that on your computer yes. so uh i'm like yep i I, I would definitely still play this today. Whereas like so many of the C64 games, like you just went through them. Like you went through, it was like, uh, you know, you'd get eight of them on a disc at a time and, and be yeah. like, okay, yeah, I blew through these, but like, yeah. Yeah, pirate. <laughs> long winded way of saying, all right. So my game that I picked was Archon, uh, which I love because it, like, all right. So, so try and picture this, you know, like, you I know, a, seriously, a five eight, and a beam quarter, of <laughs> a beam of light is shining on my desk right now for having evoked it. It's so good. Yeah, so, so you get a floppy disk and it's got a bunch of games on it. You got it from a friend because you obviously didn't buy it. Nothing came with a manual. So like, you know, you play all the stuff that was obvious, like pole position and pit stop. All right. You know, there's nothing to that. And yeah. neither is there, you know, anything to any of these other, you know, fighting and shooting games and stuff like that. A lot of them were just very intuitive. Archon less so. So like, you know, I got around to playing it and I'm like, this is a really good game. It's like a battle chess kind of thing. For me at the time, it sort of set off, hey, this is kind of like, you know, a, a game that's almost like the, the game they played on the Star Wars table, you know, in the Millennium right. Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've always wanted a game like this. I've always wanted a game where it's like chess, but, you know, the characters actually fight one another. And that's what yeah. Archon was all about. So you had like a dark side and you had a light side. And, uh, you know, you'd make various moves around this chessboard. And when, you know, two players got on the same square, <laughs> the two pieces would fight and you'd, you know, get to control them. This was such a cool thing because, like, you know, you'd be on, like, the board screen and, like, making all your moves and everything. And then it would like go into chess the plate. arena yeah. when, when the two pieces encountered <laughs> yeah. one another. And the pieces were just so fun to play. Like, oh, they were. Oh my god, they like were. you know, the, the pawns were like little knights and goblins, and they could like hit people with swords and stuff like that. If you came up <laughs> against any other piece, you were basically dead. But it was fun to you know play as the underdog. And then yeah. you know, you had all these crazy pieces like you know, basilisks and unicorns and shapeshifters and like all yeah. these different kinds of like light and dark monsters that yeah. would fight one another. And you know, there were some neat little sort of play uh mechanics to it like the color of the square that you encountered one on another on was like it mattered a lot because it's a dark bar. square <laughs> yeah it would dark, affect your you know, the dark piece would get a little bit of an advantage but like yeah. i i'd love to play this game you know i played the light side for you know game after game after game after game and then figured out it was way more fun for me anyway to play the the dark side. Oh <laughs> man. Computer, man. <laughs> I loved it so much. Like they had like slightly better monsters, in my opinion. And and oh. 
I, I could get a win, I think, better with the dark side than I could with, with the light side. So uh, the hero monster, in my opinion, like on both <laughs> sides. So like on the light yeah. side, it was the unicorn. On the dark yeah. side, it was the basilisk. Right? Oh my gosh, yes, and absolutely. These <laughs> are the fired the, the... very fast. And yeah. you had no time to react to the shots coming across the yeah. screen. That part of it was really cool. But like the basilisk had like a slightly larger projectile. <laughs> it had like two little ones instead of the to the unicorn's one. So it had also a, a smaller image. health bar. <laughs> what? A, a marginally <laughs> a marginally smaller health bar though. <laughs> but you know like if you were good you could you could overcome and I, oh my I, god I, my I just, brothers and i would get in the biggest arguments over which side was better light side or dark side i mean it was like protracted dinnertime conversations over it and it would like no peace in the household your parents are like oh we would argue back and forth between my friends too oh, yeah. a lot yeah like and like to, to me the only like dark downside of the dark side was it had this cool like little monster a little shapeshifter yeah whenever it ran into like an opposing piece it would take the same shape and have the same powers as the the monster it encountered so it was really good if you encountered like a phoenix or yeah. like a really cool monster. Not so hot if you're fighting two goblins against one or two uh, knights against one. Right. Oh, like yeah. That's, that's what would get your the computer's shape. always better at you than the low a level battle. You know, and that <laughs> yeah. wasn't very cool. But yeah. uh, the rest of the monsters on the dark side rocked, and thus I almost always took the dark side after I had the benefit of playing the game for you know several months and. Again, I would just I would just still play it today. It had yeah. terrific graphics. It is a terrific strategy game, and it had some of the coolest freaking music. Oh, heard, <laughs> it's just fantastic. <laughs> we were playing the opening theme before we started recording. I can't play it now for copyright reasons, but I I exhort everybody listening to this go to YouTube and look up Archon theme music. A R C H O N theme music go for the one for the c64 versus the apple II because i think the music on the c64 sounded better than apple II, but it's it's super super great it's so it's so good and while you're at it make sure you look up archon theme music original recording by a guy named tommy v dunbar who in 1983 did the original rock music that the computer soundtrack was taken from it's like if a fantasy painting airbrushed on a van could be a rock and roll song from the early 80s, it would be this song. Like, it's so, if you can appreciate that, it's awesome. If you're going to arch a skeptical eyebrow, it's going to be painful. But honestly, it's really awesome. <laughs> My brother used to beat me up yeah. on this game. And it was like, he'd make me play it with him. He was two years older than me. And, and he'd get tired of beating up on the computer. And so he'd make me commix. It was more fun to beat me. And he used to use, I think it was the Manticore that he used to use. Just like yes, just toy with me. Manticore is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And I just I have oh these God, like so cool. uh, PTSD related to Archon when it comes up of like just wanting to like just beat my brother physically. <laughs> no man, when it when it, PTSD when it comes to Archon is when you get trapped the formation the rocks of or whatever the, yeah. the obstacles on, on the course and and it's and it's like one of the banshees after you or a phoenix one of the oh, area of effect creatures yeah oh and you just couldn't get away you can't get oh. out of here oh, oh. oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> i play that game so much i actually got pretty good with the knights and so well the knights and the goblins i typically played light side but for me playing with my brothers the biggest flex was i would just play it like chess 
because typically there's like an orthodoxy, which was <laughs> what you do is like on, on the light side, you have the wizard on the dark side, you have the sorceress and they can cast spells. Right. So often the, the big thing you do is you teleport unicorn or basilisk and teleport them to the back row of the other side. Right. And they just start tearing up and down all your, all the other guys, valuable players, right. It just causes havoc. And that's, that was kind of the typical playbook, but I got to the point where I would just like show no fear. I'll just march my knights across the, <laughs> across the screen. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, taking you to school like oh no <laughs> like, like i would kill like the dark side dragon with a knight my brothers would just go bonkers like this is not possible i'm like i don't know i see that one dead dragon it tells me yet it is <laughs> oh my god i love that like i'm a little impressed i always got really really nervous when like one of my good creatures got challenged by a knight or a goblin because yeah. It's yours to lose, man. Like right. you can yeah. only, you know, like, those oh, are quick. No, I lost. Darn, yeah. I lost a pawn. But like, if they get you, you're. Oh man, like just hang your head in shame. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. as a knight, you you would learn to take cover behind the obstacle, and then like you you poke them, try to provoke something in the shooting, and then while the shooting is cooling down, you you run to advance even further, and like I can't get away. Like I'm gonna find you, whack, and then you get <laughs> the first hit with the sword just shatters the confidence. They realized. I can touch you exactly. It's like, bam, bap, bam, bap. You're like, man, knock it off. <laughs> you just lost it. I'm in close now. You can't do a thing. Exactly. <laughs> I'm all up in your grill. I'm all up in your business. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was so good. What I don't understand is why has this game not been updated? I mean, this is such no the doubt. fundamentals of this game are so great. There was like Mortal Kombat chess a couple of years ago and that sort of thing, but it's not quite the same. Like, I'm kind of amazed that like there hasn't been like an updated version of this why isn't the star wars hollow chess game taking off of archon mechanics why hasn't that been made right or why isn't there like a tolkien version of this all oh, this, yeah, this is a I, fancy I game or seen it like a they, they say game, that there's a sequel or... coming out well it's on some system i've never heard of though well, really okay. yeah, yeah. Um, you can do this with any genre i think it's supposed to be coming out anything. next year with like loaded i think there's i think it's gonna be on that I, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like, but they're supposed to be updating this. And, like, I would love to have, yeah, just, like, a PC version of it or a console Sounds like something that, you know, it. we should find yeah. a designer and, yeah. and, you know. Because, you like you said, this is, it's a very simple. It's abandonware. What I'm saying it's is that, like, it's abandonware. Well, apparently it's somebody not. who knew how to develop yeah. a platform and actually, because the, the framework is very simple, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about, it's a chessboard with, yeah. real, you know, with, with unpredictable battle results pieces and then you, you you put that together and then you just start licensing it right and like you said there's oh the star wars lord of the rings marvel whatever you know what I mean? it's like what munchkin does or whatever and yeah. you just start licensing it out um yeah and then just you know sit back and collect the money right the game elements of it you can't really copyright it's just the expression of it you can so for example like as long as you didn't completely mimic the entire gameplay of it like you could very easily make a star wars holographic you could do that that chess game right that appears in the movies you could just replicate that Right. And it's basically the same deal as Archon, but as soon as the two guys get in the same square, it zooms up and they fight, whatever. Like that, it worked so well. I'm just astonished that. I mean, there was a sequel. There's Archon 2. Hey, Adept, designers right? who are listening. Archon 2 is a better right game. Now. Go out and clone Archon. Yeah. You will make millions of dollars. It right. Fantastic. <laughs> let's, go to, let's go to Chris's rather bold claim that Archon 2 is a better game. Why was Adept a better game than the original, Chris? It, it was more strategic. Archon was the earliest game that I can remember that encouraged me to experiment and find new ways to win, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, by, you know, dominating the five PowerPoints, for example, I think it was five. 
It was fine. Um, yeah. I'm going to win this way this time. Yeah. And Adept really fostered that. Adept was a, I mean, an entirely similar game played on a, a field that, that had like an elemental property. You know, it, it shifted yeah. uh, in, in the way that, if, I, if I'm recalling correctly, in the way that the original Archon board shifted from light to dark certain places on the board going dark or light you know mm-hmm. uh in, by turn adept went through a a four aristotelian element cycle like that and it was more complex and i i found it more satisfying to win see my problem which with i adept, always did my problem with adept was this is that <laughs> it's the wizards and like so you had like four like wizard type guys right unlike archon their fire their shots could be more or less guided and so if you were assaulting them, it was really freaking impossible. So when you fought them, it was kind of impossible to, to win unless you fought them on the earth plane because the obstacles in the water, fire, and airplane, they just like, they, you could move through them. But, and they would like alter like the trajectory of a shot, but they wouldn't stop it. The earth plane would stop a shot entirely. So again, you can like hide behind cover, Wizard shoots that you run out and you can, then you can cosh them, right? I, I guess I never got past that strategy. And so I actually stopped playing Adept and went back to the original Archon to keep playing uh, that. I, probably so I got Archon that. 2 before I got our, the first one. And I found that, that, you know, again, no manuals. So, you know, yeah, right. you're trying <laughs> to figure out how to play this game. I'm like, yeah. I just couldn't figure it out. So like, you know, I, I went to Archon afterward and I'm like, oh, this seems like a lot simpler and a lot yeah. easier to pick up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but if you had played Archon, I, I, I think you would have found Adept similarly easy. Now, Joe, your entry to Archon was a form of fraternal punishment, right? Which is <laughs> right. So do you have any good memories of Archon or is it all just, you know, subjugation and death? I remember that I absolutely loved the, um, the presentation. I loved the concept. I loved, I loved all that. But all my experiences with it were just relentlessly negative. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> yes, just just a, a saga of ass whipping. The thing I think it's, and we haven't touched on this, but um, <laughs> one of the, the 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 brilliant thing about the pivot from Atari to the you know the whether it's the Apple IIe or the Commodore was that it was not sold to our parents as a game system. This was something that was going to help us with our homework. We could write our papers on it. Yeah. This was a tool. And then we rapidly, you know, figured out that really was a game system that you could also do word processing on. And so my parents had bought it for my brother when he was, I don't know, I think he was maybe nine or 10 and it was supposed to be his for school. Right. And so he squatted on this thing and, and he just everything, you know, they were his, he brought the games and he had the buddy that was cracking the, the games and he'd bring the discs into the house and he would let me play. Oh, okay. So I had to like, oh, yeah. I had to like yeah. in. I had to do that's all difficult. Things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in my that's, family, that's I had like you know, I had dominion over this thing because my dad was uninterested in it beyond you know getting me to write a program so I could pick the lottery numbers, and uh, you know, my mom <laughs> same way. My little sister was like three, so you know, like uh, this was my machine to play on all the time. I did spend a lot of time programming it, but at the same time it was like a game system, like with how easy the games came, it was, it was a game system. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so basically for me, by the time I, I could get to it, because my brother was in high school 
and going out on dates or going to football practice or whatever else. And I could kind of get in there and, and, uh, and he started, he was starting to lose interest in it. Yeah. And we're talking like 88, 89. And he was, uh, you know, 15, 16, and he was starting to move on to other things. I was able to get in there. So some of my interest is less the sort of 83 generation than more of the 87, 88, you know what I mean? Like, so I, yeah, I, yeah. I kind of a little later when I could actually go in and not just have to bend over and take it from him like a man. Yeah. So, oh man. Well, I'm sorry you had a bad experience with Archon because it really is. I mean, if it's not being inflicted upon you as a form of hazing, it's actually a magnificent game. I mean, it's really, it's really, it's really super fun. I, mean, I played that thing countless, countless times against the computer, against my friends. It was just such a, such a fun game. I didn't even describe the hazing. He would actually play against the computer and make me keep statistics for him. Whoa. <laughs> and make me chart Get out. the box score, man. Now, now, the thing you have to understand is, I actually dig that kind of stuff. I dig like the money ball and the, and yeah. the metrics and all that sort Speaking of stuff. Money ball archon. <laughs> Here I am at eight, nine awesome. and I've got, well, listen, this was before, cause we'd get the cracked games that didn't have the manuals. Right. And so we'd have yeah. to like, you know, say we were making up the names for who the guys were. We didn't know who they were supposed to be called. So we would call them. <laughs> but like, you know, Bard's tale, I, I actually, we'd encounter a monster and I would write down the, the, the monster and like what some of its numbers and stats and all this stuff. And we had notebooks full of, I would ride shotgun. He would play. And I was kind of like his, yeah. you know, major domo sitting there like, like rally down. driver navigator. Yeah, I, think yeah. I was thinking like rally driver navigator, <laughs> like the dude with the notebook. <laughs> I actually spent a lot of very happy hours that way. And yeah. I, I honestly, I would rather do that and watch him play Archon and keep stats than, than have to get beat up playing. Yeah. Not to get in the ring. <laughs> I, I, I totally, I totally get that. I totally get that. Joe, I, uh, I, when I was a kid, you know, 10 or so, I, I would uh, keep stats on the Mattel handheld baseball game. We, would, we would do box scores. Yep. Yeah. And I would give them, right. You'd be like, I did the Red Sox lineup. Right. So I would know. I was like, Bogs and, <laughs> and, I, and I'd have them and I'd keep track of when they were coming up yeah. and what counts they were getting hit. I mean, this is the stuff, kids, yeah. before there were phones and before there were Xbox, this was the stuff that we used to do to entertain ourselves. One of the things that I adored about Archon, apart from just the actual energy of the game, this was a game that really stuck out to me as it wasn't an arcade port and it wasn't even really trying to ar- capture strictly arcade type action. I mean, the individual battles were, but the overall thing was something that felt like it was designed for the hardware. Like it was designed to take advantage of what the C64 could do or what the Apple IIe could do as opposed to trying to chase what was outside of that context. And I, I love that. It, for me, it opened up a whole new range of like what you could expect from these games themselves. Archon felt to me like one of the first great games I experienced that was native to that kind of computer system, you know? Yeah, like if you had taken Archon and like put it in an arcade machine, it wouldn't have done it. Like, you know, no, like... It, it, yeah, it just wouldn't have felt the same sense. way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you could find nothing else like it anywhere else but on those computers. So like it was unique to that scene. And so I just, I just loved it for that. Really yeah, I mean, the, the games took too long to be a quarter. You know, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you could not monetize this the way you did it in arcade. It just simply yeah. wouldn't. It, it just wouldn't work. Yeah, no, no, so. no. All right, so I'm going to move on to my moment of truth, which is a, a, a hard jog away from the kind of the, the hard charging action of uh, Aquatron and Archon. And this gets into the graphical text adventure genre of the day. We're talking games that, that games that started without graphics, right? So there are things like Zork and whatnot, like basically these these parser games where you would be like, you know, a verb, noun, to enter in a command to figure out, you know, whatever is before you open door, you know, pick lock, eat fruit or whatever. Use lever mark to open sluice gate. Yeah. 
there are so many of these games, but the one that really stuck out to me is like my favorite one of them was a game by Penguin Software. It came out in 83 called The Coveted Mirror. It's a basic fantasy type game. You're in the land of Starbury. It's ruled by the evil king Vor, who owns four of the five pieces of a magical mirror that he tried to grab one time and it shattered. This friendly wizard hid the fifth piece. And if you can find it, and you can reunite it with the other four pieces. You can repair the mirror, and that will banish Vor from his throne and restore justice to the kingdom. You start off in the presence of Vor, and he's like giving you a hard time. And no matter what you say, he throws you in jail for it. And the cool thing about this text game, like a lot of others at the time, you would get wherever you are in the field, all of a sudden, like it would draw this relatively static image of where you are. The difference with Coveted Mirror was that you could easily escape your, your jail cell. But there's an hourglass that ticked down by like a pixel every time you made a move. So you only had so much time before you had to get back to your jail cell you know, so the guard could check up on you, make sure you're, you're okay. Or if you got caught outside of your jail cell, then you got magically whisked back to King Vor. He gave you a tongue lashing and chucked you back in jail. And there's only so many times you could be caught outside of jail before the game simply ended. One of the mini games was you had to run on fine objects of value to give to your jailer to bribe him and he would let you out for longer and longer periods of time. You had to budget that carefully as you explored this whole world, met people and did quests and fixed puzzles and did little arcade mini games. There was a fishing mini game in there as well. Uh, you know, every great video game has got a fishing mini game. I mean, that's just kind of, that's kind of the rules, right? And it was a lovely game and it was totally nonviolent and it was just very pleasant and I loved it. I loved it for a bunch of reasons. One of which was my folks bought this for me for Christmas, even though I didn't even ask for it. And at that time, I was 13 and I was getting into all kinds of things my parents fundamentally did not understand, right? They did not get computer games. You know, my dad was not particularly happy that we were playing on this, what he saw was a $3,000 word processor and we're playing games on it. That did not sit well with him. They did not get computer games. They did not get D&D. They did not get comic books. Like all the things that I loved, they were just not into but they saw that these games mattered enough to me to actually get me one and that mattered a lot to me i really i really loved it you know and they they it showed the sense that on some level they did they did get me and I, that, that went a long way the other thing about this game though is that i did hit a brick wall in it i got to the point where i just could not figure out how to advance at all and i had to put it away after a while my brother came up and he goes bill check this out and he produces the book of adventure games by kim shewitt <laughs> Right. And this thing was like the Bible for text adventure games. It was just, it was like the first cheat guide I'd ever seen, the first walkthrough guide I'd ever seen. It basically just gave you simple, here's how you get through all of this game. Right. And it was for like, like a, just a ton of these text adventure games. And I was like, oh my God, I was able to get past the hurdle in that game and, and then finish it. And I was so excited. And then, of course, with an instruction manual on how to win these games, I started playing all these other games and just walked right through them with this book at my side. It was kind of interesting because the thrill of the game went away when there's no challenge anymore. But then the games in my head kind of flipped and became more like interactive fiction than actual game. I actually love them for that. Like I enjoyed them on a totally different level. Like going through Zork by the numbers, you know, without any drama of where I'm getting lost or whatever. It was fun just to see how these things all turned out because they were games that I honestly, I would never have, solved on my own i just didn't have no doubt it did not have exactly. the ability i couldn't yeah 
I couldn't mentally map them. I couldn't figure out what the hell the programmer wanted me to do. Like a lot of these was an elaborate version of the programmer going, guess a number in my head. Well, I don't know, man. You tell me. I don't <laughs> five wrong. Okay. Well, six wrong. Like it was, kind of, it was kind of like that. They felt like that, You're you know, dead. that experience in particular, that had a big impact on me as a writer and as a game designer, you know, in later years, I'll go on to design role-playing games for a living. And this experience Coupled with the early D&D Gygaxian total party kill competitive DM philosophy that was kind of baked into that game really made me, it gave me this, this sense of, you know, a game should only ever be challenging or frustrating to the point where it enhances the fun of the game. If you get to a point where things are so rough or so impenetrable, the player either walks away or they have to resort to a guide to figure out how to win, then something has gone wrong with the game design. And I took that lesson to heart quite a lot in the games I designed in years past. But a lot of it I got from Coveted Mirror. Even though I had to cheat to beat it, I still treasure that game. I really love it. It's a good philosophy, man. Like I, I had one of those text adventure games based on The Incredible Hulk. And like there was something right in the very beginning that frustrated me. And it basically you'd be trying to, you know, turn into the Hulk and like bust out of this room. But this guy would shoot gas in there to make you turn back into Bruce Banner. Every time it would get me and I couldn't get past it. And then all of a yeah. sudden, like one time I noticed it said that they shot the gas in, but it didn't say that I turned back into Bruce Banner so I could smash through the wall. It took me probably 20 hours of playtime just to figure that out. And I was <laughs> right? like, why did that have to be so frustrating? Why, why, yeah. why? Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember playing Zork and was completely entranced by it, but I would get into that underworld zone i would get hopelessly lost like i would try to map it out as i was going i just couldn't do it and i would get so lost and it was so frustrating it's like part of it felt like well yes i'm lost in the under underworld cavern which is probably what happens to people when they go into underworld caverns however <laughs> i'm here for fun not for a death simulator you know <laughs> i have always felt that the text adventure genre and that includes the graphical text adventure genre was really doing a, a half-assed job of just recreating the experience of choose your own adventure books yeah which were simply more functional and more fun agreed no i completely agree i really like the pure text adventure ones like when they started putting the graphics in them i felt like it took even a little bit away from the experience because i remember just being in like very specific almost like the same mood i would get into when i was playing D D. Like to play Zork or Zork 2. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I love that. That was all theater of the mind. I love that so much. Like uh, Rogue is a great example of that, which essentially it's just letters, right? And you're just moving through and it's the mm -hmm. simplest possible represent, you know, graphical representation yeah. and you run through it all in your head. But I mean, you know, to, to your mind, Bill, when you, when, I never played Coveted Mirror, but I used to play those um, King's Quest games. Yes. Love them. Um, which King's is the Quest, same. Space I mean, Quest. Very yeah. similar, right? Um, yeah, yeah, there were a ton of games like this. I mean, there was a whole, there was a whole library of games that were very much of this ilk. Walk down the road, all of a sudden the screen wipes and you're you're at the next. Yeah, it you wipes. Hamlet, you know, like oh, here yeah. we go. Well, yeah, with with King's Quest though, it was more graphical. I, I don't recall it being about. Well, King's Quest and Space Quest, you could actually control your character and they would move right. around on the screen, and and that was a, a big step forward in the graphic interaction. But there were games like Transylvania. There's one called The Wizard and the Princess, which is really old. These were basically Zork, but with illustrations. Sometimes you would actually watch the computer drawing in the whole thing and then slowly coloring it in. Like it took a while yeah. to process the image. And the drawings were like something a child would do in MS Paint. I mean, they were right. not, they, it was not high art. 
where the coveted mirror was a step up is that the art really looked for the time for the for the tech it looked really good and it was actually mildly animated like it was like if somebody's yelling at you the gaudy like wagging his finger at you or something like that there's one i played called law of the west which was super awesome that got rid of the text parsing mechanic entirely and instead something would happen and it would give you a drop down of different different conversation options so it was actually much more to your point chris much more like a choose your own adventure right so you chose the response and that would have a dynamic effect on how that encounter would turn out and that would affect things down the road in the game the whole game was a day in this out wild west town that was going to end in a shootout with a bad guy these games produce some really cool gameplay but they're kind of bracketed in this whole zone like in the 80s they were like a huge deal once like the king's quest and space quest things kind of went away once it was more you could control your character you can, can do a lot more direct interaction this whole method of gameplay just sort of vanished. And it was a flawed kind of gameplay, but I, I have much love for it because it's of a, of a time. Joe, do you have much experience with these kinds of games? Because I know you came into this thing a little bit later than I did. And I'm kind of curious if by the time you got rolling on like the C64 or whatever, if these games were even a thing anymore for you. I did, but it actually kind of happened later. My first wife had had computers a little bit before and had gotten into that stuff. And then when, when we were dating... We sort of got after that from a, um, a nostalgia standpoint. And so yeah. we played a lot of Zork just because it was hilarious and we got a huge kick out of it and Rogue and, and that sort of stuff. Because, yeah, I mean, one of the ones that would, I did play because my neighbor had it was uh, the Carmen San Diego original games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much text based, right? And you would, you know, where do you go? And there were the animations of yeah. the plane and all that sort of stuff. So that's really the one I remember playing in real time. Yeah. San Diego. I played a lot of that myself, uh, even though I was too old for it. It was a satisfying game. Oh, I, I, I yeah, I mean, trivia plus geography plus, I mean, God, it's, what's, what doesn't it? <laughs> well, Karma San Diego kind of fulfilled that oft-promised but rarely fulfilled notion of games can be education, education can be games. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I, you know what? There's a fighter ship called Aquatron calling my name. I got to go. You know, <laughs> that, we're going to talk about was, this in a minute, actually. This is a perfect segue. So, Joe, let's get to your moment of truth, because your game actually did make that bridge. And I know exactly where you're going with this. So, so take it away. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have to talk about again, it's sort of like yours, Bill. It's, it's representative of a broader genre. Right. I mean, once you get into 86, 87, we get away from the, either the scroller games or the uh, ports from arcade games or Atari and into this and, and the programmers started to realize these whole worlds that they could build and have you mm-hmm. really uh, th- th- this sort of open world concept right where it wasn't a matter of navigating a set maze it was a matter of a maze where the walls would move and every game would be different the game I'm talking about is, is Sid Meier's Pirates oh. and this oh. came out in 87 which was, was getting fairly late in the in the Commodore age uh, so good. But it's really in my wheelhouse. And this is a game where you are, uh, uh, you know, an aspiring young buccaneer in the Spanish main. And, but there are choices. You are presented right off the bat with choices. And, and, and to Tom's really point to like, you know, what would replicate the D&D experience or some of this, this role-playing experience. And you can pick your character's name and what country they sail for. Are they English or Dutch or Spanish or French? And then what skills do you have? And those choices actually impact the game. Because the strategy of it is, you know, you're, you're, you're spending your time in your ship, getting crew together, and then you're, you're attacking other ships, you're, you're attacking towns. But 
you have to be strategic about what towns and what ships you attack because there's shifting diplomatic alliances between the uh, between the countries and you know you can make a living just getting after the Spanish uh, along the northern uh, you know coast of, of South America or you can be Spain and go like get fat on all the little guys and but the game is different depending on on what and then you're yeah. like, buried treasure I mean, in the town you could go see the merchant you could go and you know and, and the governor, you know, you get promotions from the governors and then you had to find who you were going to marry and all this stuff. It was just, there was a lot to do. And the only governor's daughters is a career. Well, governor's daughters too. What I love it's a whole mini game, like I wooing governor's mean. daughters on different islands with like a whole, a whole yeah. deal. And, and, and it's horrible, right? That like, there were like three ranks of daughters. There was the plain daughter, the, the attractive uh-huh. daughter and the beautiful daughter. And like right. when you landed, affected your final score <laughs> it's like, come yeah on, what are we doing here? yeah but you know you could actually get promoted up through the ranks and you tried to make it to be a duke uh, of your given nationality but you could also what we would do is you know you get to be an english duke and then you turn around and like just start attacking the english and you'd make it as a french duke too <laughs> kind of it's like right. nothing more purely piratical than that right um <laughs> but this game, I mean, there are all the different ships that you could get that had different tonnage, that had different, different armament availability. I'm a huge seafaring guy, and I see Chris like that down there, like, you know, we're big into the Patrick O'Brien and, and you know, Horatio Hornblower and all this sort of stuff, James Cook. And I, I mean, I, I love the whole Age of Sail. And for me, I, I've never been a big pirate guy, you know, like Pirates of the Caribbean movies, whatever, like that, that doesn't do a whole lot for me. My moment of truth for this game is the map. Yeah. The map was like honestly we go back to my brother would play and i would be his first mate right uh, hey you could be my first mate and watch me play for hours on end but i studied this map man the notebook powder yeah, monkey exactly here you go <laughs> but hey listen man the notebook i'm writing down every kind of ship and i'm writing down like yeah what the, you know how much you can keep on each ship and all this stuff what the price of yeah. sugar and Nevis what is the prices the- were at various yeah. towns it yeah. was a big deal prices move well in campesh so i'm studying this map because my brother's going to say where's veracruz and i'm going to say oh yeah you know it's going to be you know x number of leagues to your southwest and to this day I know where everything in the Caribbean is. I know I know where Caracas is. I know where all mm-hmm. the places are in 1680. I, I know what the Windward Isles are. Yeah, I know what the Windward Isles are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you learn that, Dad? Oh, yeah. So this is like many years of sailing. <laughs> you need to picture, right? Like, like here it is. It's Jeopardy. It's, it's yeah. Jeopardy. And I need to come back. And here's the category. Oh, 17th century Caribbean geography. Here we go. That's <laughs> my dream board, right? <laughs> yeah. I feel like I learned all the major cities <laughs> in the United States. Well, and the thing is, in the USA, I mean, <laughs> some years ago. You guys ago. ever play that one? What's that? What's that, Tom? I feel like I learned all the major cities in the United States from Agent USA. Did you <laughs> ever play that one? I never that played it, but that was definitely I, 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 multi platform. <laughs> <laughs> You can play that on Apple II. You can play that on the C64. You can play that on a phone. Yeah. yeah. I convinced my wife to take a vacation. We actually went to St. Martin and, you know, took the shuttle over to, over to Nevis and everything. And I'm just geeking out yep. the entire time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I've sacked this place many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Pirates is one of those games. It came with an actual printed out poster map 
of the Caribbean. And in my house, we had, you know, the computer room, right? Which is like this study my parents didn't want to use where the computer lived. That's where like we, my brothers and I just sort of camped out there and put all of our computer stuff there. We had the pirate's map like on the wall, like kind of permanently stationed there. I think the map to like Ultima four was on the other wall. It was just there for eternity, but I'll be playing other games. And I'll just look and I'll just look at this map. And yeah, Joe, I completely hear you. That map is burned into my memory. Like I could probably sustain a, like a mid caliber bullet wound to the brain. And I would still, re- <laughs> I would still retain that map somewhere. <laughs> you know? It's it's that deep, like it's in by the brainstem, you know. <laughs> I think that you know one of the important things too about this game is you know Sid Meier, right, who had, had come from Master, more of these battle based games, right, like you know yeah. combat games and shoot 'em ups and all that stuff. And here he pivots hard into strategy and into this world building. And um, there's this great story about that they were just going to call it Pirates, and the creators of the game were at a dinner with Robin Williams. And Robin Williams had him in stitches and they were talking and everything. And Robin Williams said, you know, you should put the Sid Meier guy's name on the box because he's going to be a star. And they said, well, Robin Williams had to do it. So we're going to go ahead. So they said, okay, we're going to call it Sid Meier's Pirates. And yeah. the guy became like, you know, there aren't that many like sort of superstar game designers from, from that, from that era that, but he's one. And, and he, he parlayed that. And, you know, we get into the, the, the later stuff, civilization and, and uh, Alpha Centauri and everything that came after but pirates is the sui generis of all of it, right? Like this is the one yeah. that he he built the model that he then you know successfully was able to apply later. I yeah. Now, Tom, did you play pirates at all? I had it. I didn't play it all that much, but like I wish I did. Like every site that I have consulted to just you know refresh my memory for this episode has pirates at number one. <laughs> um, it's up there, and like, it's it's so good. I remember liking it, but like not liking it as much as other games I was playing yeah. at the time. And it's just like, maybe I wasn't that strategic at 10, you know, like. <laughs> I didn't serve an apprenticeship before the mast like I did with my brother. Well, 15 or seven, seven, 16. But. So I watched this interview one time with the creators of the arcade game Robotron 2084. And they said that what made that game so compelling and so hard was they created what they call priority panic amongst the player, right? So it's like you had to shoot guys coming at you, you had to dodge bullets, and you had to save people at the same time. So you had these three often competing priorities, and you had to figure out what am I going to, you could do, you could only do like two at once, really. And so you had to figure out at all times, what's that third one you're ignoring, and that's where your threat would come from. And it made the game just immensely more deep than a lot of other games. Pirates does that on order of magnitude larger. What nation are you serving? What nation are you screwing over? Do you have enough food on your ship? Are you traveling the right way for the wind? Are you making enough progress to find your family and dig up pirate treasure? Um, and then on top of all these things- Because you're gonna die one day. Yeah, you're aging in real time <laughs> in the game. So eventually you're getting older by the adventure and that's always in the back of your head. Like and sword wounds start to add up after a while. You have to think from the very beginning, all right, what are my next 30 years as a plunderer going to look like? And no other game made you do that. There was a ton that that game made you do. And again, no manuals. So, you know, <laughs> pirate. Yeah. Yeah. Something <laughs> too no way of uh, figuring it all out other than trial and error. <laughs> the breadth and depth and scope of what Meyer was able to do here. And this was his first sort of Sid Meyer game, right? And, you know, later yeah. did like Railroad Tycoon and just, uh, and then all the other stuff that followed from there. I, I just, Pirates is so good that they keep remaking it too. Like you can play it now. Yeah. I, I downloaded yeah. it on Steam the other day. There's a 
very modern, very slick. It's, 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 it's beautiful. It's much better rendered, obviously. But the, the game mechanics are virtually unchanged. Yeah. And what he, what he yeah. put out in 1987. I have bought and played at least five or six different versions of Pirates over the years, and I will keep doing Same. it. As long as, it's, as long as I own a system that will run on, I will buy that game for whatever they're charging. If they dropped the $60 version of a PS4 tomorrow, I would be out 60 simoleons, right? I mean, it would leave my hand so fast, it would blister my skin. I mean, I would be so on it. Ironically, during an age when so many games are pirated, this is the one game we actually bought. But, <laughs> uh, but, but you know, there are other games at the time, though, that kind of touch upon that same, like what you're talking about, Joe, like that massive open world, not just an open world, but also a huge variety of things you can do in that world. There's a very simple game called Taipan, which you can actually play in your browser. You look up Taipan. That, that's a very super stripped down version of Pirates, but during the Opium Wars in the Far East, you know, so it's like, it's very simple. I played that a lot. There's a game called Swashbuckler I played. That was since a sword fighting well, that was game. Good. Sword, that was yeah, good. Swashbuckler was great, but it was kind of like the fencing mini game in Pirates. So it was like a little yes. chunk of Pirates, but as exactly. its own game. It was just a piece right. of Pirates. It was a piece like of Pirates. Trade wins, right? Like Trade Winds was another... There's a game called Sundog, which is like a outer space version where you're like you're flying, right? You're flying around from planet oh, to planet, trading game. and fighting pirates and like getting and oh. like going over land. And the point was to get enough money to buy to actually buy the deed to your ship. Sundog was fantastic, but the granddaddy of them all was this game called Elite, which I played. And Elite was this. It was like all vector graphics. It was like Asteroid, like the, you know, it, it looked like that. It was so basic, but it was this massively open outer space flying around and trading and pirating and fending off bad guys and kind of thing. And it was massively fun. And I played that forever as well, but it was, you could quite... do what you want when you wanted all the yeah. time. Yeah. And these kinds of games really got their hooks to me deep. And as much as I love elite and I do love elite deeply, deeply, I don't think it ever did anything as good as pirates did and, and then kept doing. I mean, I think pirates for my money in this kind of zone pirates sort of reign supreme even look at like later game platforms and games that are just so massively open. I'm like, yeah, I love Skyrim, but you know what? Skyrim still never made me open wide my eyes and hang my jaw in this slack disbelief of what's before me the way pirates did when I first played it, you know? So I know. No, I'm with you. There is nothing of pirates generation that even comes close no. other than elite. And you know, the, the original elite, is limited that said i have put more hours into its sequel elite dangerous than i have into any other game in my lifetime <laughs> well elite so there was actually a, a version in between those two like in the early 90s i guess there was a, a an upgraded version of elite for the pc that had like like picture graphics like you, like you look at like a world it would like show you like the, a graph what the planet looked like and just some minor upgrades but fundamentally the same game just with some extra graphics it wasn't but it wasn't like elite dangerous which is like a quantum leap ahead and, holy smokes and that, Over that's four thousand hours oh my gosh i i bought that game for the playstation not realizing it's really meant for a computer you really that's really a mouse and keyboard kind of game so i never really i have it haven't really been able to enjoy it but you know what's funny my goodwill from the original Elite is so great. I don't care that I burned 60 bucks on Elite Dangerous and didn't really play it. <laughs> so, so, there, so there we have it. But um, you know, yeah. Part of the reason, you know, that, that it opened your eyes so wide was that, you know, back then was this was the first time you could do big open world games. Like stuff like yeah. that you yeah. couldn't make for an Atari 2600 or no, certainly not. No, not television, at all, so. what have you. Like, yeah. 
this is not the even a time, community you know, like, and and you know I, I remember like big open world games like all of a sudden now you're swapping discs and everything and these things are getting more and more ambitious i mean mm-hmm. crazy yeah. crazy stuff like I, that definitely set my wheels turning like this can be something i think like a much a lot bigger than arcade games can be yeah and it started to set the goal from like all right i want a system that's going to play arcade games exactly like they are in the arcade to no, I want like something that's really built for the hardware and can, you know, showcase its capabilities. Yeah. Even though it only has 64 yeah. day memory. But <laughs> well, Pirates is one of those games that, like I'd start playing it and I would totally lose track of time. And it was just, it yeah. was like the the complete opposite of the three to five minute arcade experience that was meant to churn you over fast. This sucked you in and didn't want you to ever leave. Pirates and later iterations of of, of Sid Meier's work is crack cocaine. Like, I'm just going to do this one next thing. And then I'll go to, yeah. I'm just going to do this one next thing. I'm just going to this town and just, uh, okay, but no, but okay, I'm, I'm here. So I'm going to also do that. And then it's two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about Sid Meier's work later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, Sid Meier's is, is an absolute saint for all gamers. He's done so much incredible work. But Pirates, though, I mean, I just, I have endless love for it. Now, I will say this, though, Joe, one thing about Pirates is that it didn't just give you choice for who you were or what skill you had or who you chose to fight for. It actually gave you like five or six different eras in which you could play. It was a dynamic playing field. So if you like blew the heck out of Havana, well then Havana would, it took a while for it to get its gourd back together against the trading port, you know, but like, it was like that for the other eras. There was a default era that was like the Buccaneer heroes. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was like maximum lawlessness. Right. Did you ever play any of the other oh, yeah. other areas? Because some of them got really hard. You went to one. My favorite to, was to go into like the 1560s where it was like it's Spanish dominance. And there's just a couple of tiny places like one English little port in Barbados. Maybe like there's one. There's not a lot of places. And there's like these roving bands of, of Spanish warships that are just looking to crush you. That's a lot of fun. And then I got to go play this tonight. Play <laughs> Seriously. I, you know, you know. So one of the things I loved about Pirates is I learned a lot about that part of history when I was playing the game. Like as I played it, there were a couple of games like this where it actually came with a fair, like the instruction manuals came with a fair bit of historical background to kind of give you in, into the scene of like, well, this is what it all meant. This is why things were the way they were. It wasn't a textbook, but it was way more than a typical instruction manual would offer. And I actually would read the instruction manual again and again to get details on that world. But I find myself like we would be playing and like my brother, like, Hey man, I want to play for a while. Okay, sure. I jump off. And then I'd get like a book I checked out from the library on the pirate age, you know, and just like start reading up on it. And it was great. And there was a, a thing in the game that I thought was really cool, which was that it had a track of all the greatest pirates of all time based on like the number of victories, you know, you're now number 10, you've actually gotten better than Jean Lafitte. Like, Oh Yeah. And you would encounter you Jean Lafitte, right? And you, would, but you would encounter these guys out there. I'm like, I'm taking him down. He's number four. I kick him out. I'm going up the ladder. And that was a really cool thing too. Like you'd fight these actual historical was. pirates. You'd, like, you'd, like you'd find them randomly, and yeah. oh yeah. yeah. And like you're starting off. Here comes Blackbeard. Like turn around. It's Blackbeard. <laughs> That's a frigate, yo. Yeah, exactly. The amount of and again, it's not. You know, obviously. 100% historically accurate, but no. it's very good. They do a lot of replicating sort of some aspects of the day, right? I mean, it's obviously romanticized, but yes, of course. I, I, I remember later in life, you know, starting when I would start to read the, uh, the Hornblower series or the Aubrey Matterin series, and they would talk about a brigantine and the difference between a frigate and a bark. And I'm like, yeah, 
I know. I know. I know that. <laughs> I know. I know barks because they're hardly worth the effort to sink them. They never carry any good treasure. <laughs> I know what a ship of the line is. Don't mess with me. Exactly. Exactly. So, oh man, it's it's it's. Gosh, I. Yeah, I, I would turn on. I would play pirates right now if I could. I, I just I played a game. I did. You know, my prep for this was I played the modern version. I played the updated version. I was chided by my wife for ignoring other things. <laughs> Well, before we wrap up, I want to get into the kind of last section of all this, which is at least 3,170 games were developed for the Apple II series, which sounds like a lot until you learn that there were at least 4,700 games developed for the Atari 8-bit series and a whopping like 17,718 games were developed for the Commodore 64. Even when you account for games simultaneously being released across all three platforms, and that did happen a lot, the fact remains is that during this decade or so of home computer dominance, there were an awful lot of games that were published. It's impossible, obviously, for us to cover even 1% of the greatest of these games, but we're going to have a speed round so we can give a shout out to the games that still matter to us, but we didn't have a chance to get into this time because I know for a fact that me, Chris, Tom, and Joe all came to this, this recording with a bunch of the all-saran games that we got to shout out because we just, we just love them so much. So we're going to do this as fast as we can and as many rounds as we can real quick. We're going to start, pick out a game that made your shortlist for moments of truth and what was so awesome about it. Okay, Tom, go. I got to go with Death Sword, which they called uh, Barbarian, uh, depending on which version you got. Two Conan guys, like, just going at it in an arena and trying to... The greatest thing about this game was, like, if you hit, uh, uh, like, this sort of, like, movement just right, you would chop your opponent's head off, and this little troll would kind of strut out onto the screen, like, muttering under his breath kick the other guy's head like off screen and then drag his body out it was so fantastic i love it that is awesome i'm i i am so sorry i never even saw it. that's oh, it's utterly awesome i feel bad <laughs> all right joe speed round what, what what's a game that made your short list we played an awful lot of bruce lee um, oh and my brother was bruce lee and i was sumo sid and we went around <laughs> and fought ninjas and we turned on and off lanterns and we did it and we did it again I would choose to play the sumo because if you press down, he did that, like that big yell he did. <laughs> I, I love the sumo. Okay, it was so freaking great. Chris, game that made your short list. Mobius, the Orb of Celestial Harmony. Oh, uh, Mobius. Kung Fu themed RPG by uh, Origin. Origin, yeah. which I don't think we can leave this episode without chatting up a little bit. Founded by the Garriott Brothers. Uh, of Ultima fame, but also employed one Chris Roberts, who later developed Wing Commander for Origin, and today is the guy behind the biggest crowdfunded vaporware project in history, Star Citizen. I have personally sunk at least $400 into that game, and it is still not released after five years. I did it on your recommendation, so feel bad. <laughs> feel bad. It's a pyramid scheme now. <laughs> you uh, you played really. you played uh, the the disciple of this kung fu master whose previous disciple had uh, gone bad, Vader style, and stolen the orb of celestial yeah. harmony. Uh, you had to train your disciple to build up skills with fist, sword, and divination in yeah. fights of two D fights, like like of gyar kung fu complexity, maybe. Yeah, and. I, it had so much that the art in this game was gorgeous 
Yeah, yeah when you went out into the overworld, these bamboo forests that you would wander through and get lost in and starve to death in just were phenomenal. Uh, it doesn't necessarily age well, but it had that, it had a really modern sensibility. Of, it landed of, like a meteor amongst the dinosaurs when it came out. I remember it was, yeah. like, it was just blue people just totally away. Yeah, it's very awesome. To end up the, the first round of this, uh, my pick is going to be the Bard's Tale. Which, which, which Joe had mentioned. Bard's Tale was a basically like a D&D type game where you could run an entire party of fantasy adventures through this mystical city of Scarabray and just run around and just endless dungeon crawling and endless party management. Probably, I would say, the best of a number of games that were like this. Uh, Wizardry series um, kind of came before it, had no graphics to it. There are others, there were the Ultima games, there was Wasteland, but Bard's Tale is the one I really took a shine to. I never really actually played it though. Frankly, I was a little, I was a little intimidated by the complexity, to be honest. But also, by the time I really kind of figured it out, my brother and some of my friends, including our editor Derek, by the way, were huge fiends of the Bard's Tale. So, like Joe, I was actually really content to watch my friends play this game and take notes and kind of offer, kind of like you know, I would be like their sidekick, offering kind of stuff along the way. But I didn't actually play it a whole lot. But I, I watched that game more than I played certain other games, and I oh, really, no I really, yeah, played a lot of that game. They did a, a a console level version of the Bard's Tale some years ago, and they they when they put it out when they put it out to mobile, I bought the mobile version not to play the game, but because it also came with a mobile port of the original Bard's Tale one, two, and three. And I actually nice. got it to play that on my on my thing. I TPK'd instantly. It was it was a bloodbath. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> all right, round two, Tom. What's another game you had on your short list? Game series, actually. I mean, I, I, you can't talk about C sixty four without talking about Epics as a publisher truth they were so good they made some of like the top i mean impossible mission uh but like the thing that i really loved about epics was the like the summer games winter games yeah uh summer games to uh california games like <laughs> that stuff was just so great like the replayability on that was just so terrific and you know a lot of it just focused on you know having to hit your joystick you know just at the right point or something like that but like i loved being able to like you know execute a perfect swan dive or you know uh do like a half pipe you know skating thing and, yeah. and nail it perfect you know like so many hours went into those games they were fantastic. well and, and, and the best part to about the summer and the winter games was the you get to the podium and they would play the anthem and there were all the different countries it's like what is spain's national anthem yeah yeah, yeah. Of it, right so <laughs> absolutely we used to put whole rosters together like we would we would fill it all up with, with fictional guys and we would you know we'd play whatever and and then it would be like you know somebody like from you know, here's the german national anthem or whoever else and it was just like it was really really cool a lot of fun it was also a great way for you to compete with each other like you know you know, like i'm gonna go i'm gonna do the skiing whatever and then somebody else is like all right i'm gonna come up and i'm gonna do it afterwards and it was like it was just it was a really fun way that multiple people could stand around or sit around a computer and kind of play against each other it was it was a, it was we great like that destroyed more joysticks with that <laughs> Yeah, that, was the, that was that was an absolute bloodbath for, for joysticks, and I, and I will say this time you mentioned Mission Impossible, which was which was one of my you know was was one on, on my list. I remember almost solely for the scream when he falls through the the hole, and would do this like he would you know he'd be going along on the screen and he would fall down in one of the gaps, and would just scream forever. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> that game had some great sounds in it. Oh, my God. The, the guy right at the beginning, stay a while. Stay forever. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's so good. That, that was very, very early voice synthesis, actually. Yeah. One of the first examples of it. Joe, what is also in your uh, round two on your speed of round here? What do you got? 1984's Ghostbusters. Oh, ah, nice. Which was a phenomenal. Love that game. This was when they started to, you know, every movie had to have the game tie in, yeah. right? The gameplay was just so wonderful. And, the, you know, you had to, you know, you made money and then you were able to reinvest that money in other things, which is, we, as we all know, the like uh, the catnip cycle that we go through in these games now, like, oh, if I get right. more money, I can better stuff and then make more money and buy better stuff which is you know the basic premise behind virtually every video game since. yeah but i felt that like that was really a very early you know version where you could buy upgrades to the ectomobile and um it, it just had a really smooth um clean look to it yeah. and we played a lot of that oh so good chris auto duel yes uh, oh my god developed yes. and published by origin as an adaptation of Steve Jackson's Car Wars, where the right of way goes to the biggest guns. Uh, it's, a, it's a Mad early, Max simulator. It's yeah, so it's cool. a Mad Max simulator. It's a, a, an early graphical RPG. Oh, man. Put you in this post-apocalyptic road warrior setting uh, where you're trying for some reason to bring down Mr. Big. Mr. The Big. Story, the story is not a story. It's uh, it's just a matter of events that you can complete when you have sufficient prestige within the game, but the the meat of this game was the car design. I mean, everything about it kind of sucks, you know, by modern standards. But you can you can see on the one hand a proto Grand Theft Auto kind of thing going on because you could do so many things in this game the, the car design was straight out of like pen and paper mech warrior yeah you had to make really difficult decisions about whether you wanted a, a heavier chassis or a heavier yeah. suspension uh how hard should your tires be you had you could carry 10 different weapons <laughs> and the weapons you carried really determined how you kind of fought out in the world and, too. Yeah, and and all your you know all your weapons were ammo dependent, and you know yeah. you, your most common way of dying in this game was to just sort of like run out of ammo or gas or, or well power out in in the giant map, the the world map of the game. It it, it was I don't know you could play it forever. You can actually get out of your car too and like salvage yeah. stuff and like out of your car, somebody can come by and just like hoon right over you. <laughs> like, bam, you're done. You're done. <laughs> <That's> it. <laughs> it's not, it's not good exactly. <laughs> the, but, I mean, but, the, the controls suck. But for what it was at the time, though, it offered, it was that was up there with like pirates and elite as far as like this massive yeah. open world and how you navigated it was up to you and you could customize your car so well and it was just like all that choice was super 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 fun it, it leads the right comparison i think and and yeah. pirates is the wellspring so i think for this round i'm going to go with the bilestode which is basically a gladiators fighting with axes kind of thing which is great but rather than going down that road i think what i'm going to go is to the other great fighting game of the year which was karateka by jordan michener 
this is the game he cut his teeth on before he went on to make Prince of Persia, right? Right. And Kratika was just like this super smooth, rotoscoped, looked gorgeous for the time. The animation's gorgeous. Side-scrolling game. You are a lone karate warrior. He was ascended to the top of the evil warlord Akuma's fortress, and you need to punch and kick your way through his legion of bad guys to get to the Princess Mariko and to rescue her. And it's just this super cool fighting system, pretty basic, but it was just like super great. At one point, Akuma sends his, his pet eagle after you and he's like just savaging your face, like, get off of me, man. But then there's a great thing where, you know, you beat Akuma and you go into the prison cell and there's Mariko. And if you ran to her, she held you and kissed you and you won. If you approached her fighting style, she simply kicked you in the nads and bang, you're dead. <laughs> it's like, I remember like, okay never never approach never approach something like that in a fighting stance okay lesson learned you know karateka was just it was such a beautifully like visually the game looked so incredible and it moved so fluidly smooth yeah very smooth yeah great and there's a platform we had that on c64 too mobius was a successor no doubt yes yes mobius was like if karateka was a role-playing game it kind of scaled up to that 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 thing but it was uh yeah it was super cool so i loved it Round three, Tom, go ahead. I got to go with Raid over Moscow. I mean, it's the quintessential like C64, like right in the middle of the Cold War game. It was just, it, it had multi-stages. It was one of those things that like access the disk drive quite a bit while you were playing and, you know, to load the next level of it. There were like distinct levels to it and they were all each sort of like their own like little mini game. That one had just had a lot of replayability for me and, and I loved it. And it was just so like Cold War. I love it. <laughs> Outstanding. I was saying, Joe. Uh, I'm going to go with Beachhead 2. Yo, uh, Beachhead! No, Beachhead 2. But you know, uh, the whole series, Beachhead 2 is, oh my God, go ahead. Uh, well, Beachhead 2 for me it has to do with the reactions of the guys who get hit. Medic! There were four. There was Medic. I'm hit! Just a scream. Ah! But the, my, our favorite, which was the rarest one, was just, it starts out as the screen, but gets cut short. The guy goes, ah! <laughs> it's just a little burst. <laughs> had it. Um, but we used to play that for hours and just die laughing at these poor these poor souls getting cut down and crying out. Yeah, yeah. Beach, Beach Hay was an extended lesson in the cruelty of war and that you cannot take that position without losing large numbers of guys. Like, there's no, there's, there's no heroic, I'm going to do it, not take losses. No, you will lose guys. <laughs> this is Normandy all the way. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Actually. And the cool thing about it is that the one game, you were basically from the side of the pillboxes and the other game, you're from the side of the guys invading, you know, and I forget which one was which, <laughs> but, you know, but it's like you saw basically the same war, but from two different sides, you know, and it was, it was really pretty cool. So, oh, Joe, that's a great call, man. Love it. Chris? Balance of Power. Uh, if you never played it or saw it, it was a nuclear brinksmanship game. There was no action. It was all political. The sort of actioniest thing that could happen was for you to, to lose, have a nuclear war, and, and rather than like a big mushroom cloud explosion, you know, it, it would just go black and say... You've lost, uh, you know, everybody's dead. <laughs> it, it was it was the most <laughs> unbelievably stark comment on uh, realpolitik and yeah. nuclear brinksmanship that you could imagine from uh, a computer game. And it was yeah. made in like 1986. Oh, my gosh. 
I'm going to go with Beyond Castle Wolfenstein. Ooh, good one. <laughs> <laughs> anything right. from the wolfenstein series yeah. yeah so the wolfenstein series there's castle wolfenstein there's beyond castle wolfenstein both are fantastic they're like the first like stealth action game i came across you know so like i think like you couldn't have had a metal gear before you had wolfenstein you, you infiltrated this it's like it's it's world war ii you're this allied commando penetrating deep into this nazi stronghold point of that one is you had to go in and basically get a bomb and then get the lowest level where hitler and his top SS guys of all kind of like his top generals of all like hidden and you're going to place a bomb there to to kill Hitler and destroy the top of the Third Reich and then get the heck out of there and it was all like you had to sneak you could bribe guards yeah take guys out quietly you know because all this sort of thing you can get in their uniforms and pass yourself off like it was this it was a great infiltrator game and there's lots of different ways you could go about doing it you know and it was again the freedom of choice but it was a super crazy fun game and uh, we loved it a lot and uh, in no small part because killing Hitler never gets old. So, never. Never. all right, all right. So, so I'm, I'm going to exhaust you guys. One, one more round. You get, are you guys up for one more round? Absolutely. Sure. Fantastic. All right, Tom, go ahead. I'm going to go with Test Drive. That was like you know the teen fantasy, like getting all your favorite sports cars to drive around. The low end was the Corvette, you know. So like you got to drive everything. You get to drive like Ferrari Testarossas and lamborghini countaches and it was the only game that i knew like you could actually end it and it would be game over if you drove too slow <laughs> like you don't deserve you. to be in this car game over sorry you know like it was great <laughs> too slow get off the road you big jerk off the road. you did 55 nope nope 55. That's for chumps and suckers. Yeah. Over. <laughs> that's like that's like with marathons. After six hours, if you're still on the course but you're not maintaining like a certain pace, they'll actually come and they'll take you off the course. Yeah, they'll scoop you up. Like, sorry, dude. Yeah, sorry, yeah. buddy. Sorry, you, you are too slow now because passersby, <laughs> like literally pedestrians, are going faster yeah, than you. Exactly. Than you. Joe, what do you got? I'm gonna break the rules here. I'm gonna say we played games like Aztec Challenge and Montezuma. Oh, those are still. good. Uh, Aztec was great. We wanted to love Quest Probe, and it was terrible. Um, you mentioned Ultima, Ultima Four, Quest of the Avatar. We played a living ton, um, but then really it was a lot of what we played was. Um, you mentioned the Bard's Tale. Uh, in that vein, we played Pool of Radiance. We played Curse of the Azure Bonds. We played Legacy of the Ancients. Uh, all those sort of D and D based yeah. games, and we we played those endlessly. Pool of Radiance <laughs> is a particularly big deal. I remember that being like pretty much the last game I bought for C64 before I got disinterested in it. They were franchises I never once played, but I knew how big they were because they were so, they were everywhere. And, and, and like, yeah, and they were like Might and Magic in particular was huge. Pools of Radiance was, was, was really, really huge. Part of it's like, I just never got my hands on them. So I kind of feel like I, I missed out by not actually seeing them back in the day. So they were not too dissimilar from a Bard's Tale in their sort of presentation. Mm -hmm. Because it was a lot of party management. It was yeah. a lot of, you know, turn this way, turn that way in the dungeon kind of thing. You could play D&D by yourself. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, Chris. I'm going with uh, Boulder Dash slash Load Runner. Uh, <gasps> oh, Boulder Dash Runner. is 1984, first, first star software, and uh, Load Runner was 1983 Broderbund. Puzzle games that were twitchy AF. Like, they, they both had this, like, Boulder Dash had like the ability to plan ahead and then you had to do everything super fast. Ah! <laughs> Whereas Load Runner, you just had to think on your feet. You had, you know, the only action you can take is dig a hole. And those were both endlessly 
entertaining games. Load Runner particularly uh, is notable for having probably the first level editor. Yeah, yeah. I played Load Runner an awful lot. You could spend like, when you got high enough into the game, some of those super hard levels, it could take you like an hour or more to get through them because they were just Absolutely. so, the chain of events was so complicated to figure it out. It was really, it could really you know, mess with your mind, but it was so, so freaking good. Load Runner is a lot like Montezuma's Revenge. There's a lot of similarity to those. Yeah, yeah for sure. All right, so for mine, I'm going to go with another Sid Meier game, actually, and this is The Silent Service. It was mm. a World War II submarine simulator in the Pacific Theater, and I love this game. because, And I got this, we had this for the Apple II GS. So we didn't have a lot of games we got for the GS that really stuck out to me as like major benchmarks in my gaming career per se. But this one for the GS was, it was really advanced. It was super awesome. What I love so much about it, it was just a great sub game. This is the first game I ever pulled an all-nighter playing. Uh, and I remember like I was playing and it was late at night and I had the lights off in the computer room. And so I was running underwater and I had like, you know, the red, the red lights. And it's like, I felt like I was in a submarine, like I was so immersed and I had these like incredibly epic, you know, battle with myself, sub hunters. And I had these like just waiting it out. It was like Das Boot, but like in my basement. And it was like, so it's such an intense thing. I remember that session actually, even now, you know, many, many years afterwards. And it was a game that I don't see it make a lot of best of lists necessarily, but it was a supremely well done game as far as a, you know, you're charting your own, you're basically a free roaming American submarine, just, just shattering Japanese nautical lines. And it was uh, it was super cool. It was super, super cool. Absolutely. Absolutely loved it. Of that ilk, there are other vehicular type games that I really liked. They weren't quite as open, but they were still kind of getting to the the vehicle things. So there was a game called Sky Fox, which is like an open, like an early like. Oh, I love Sky Fox on my list. Right, right, right. Sky Fox, like like, like an early like you know you know early like like alien kind of you know fighter simulator type thing, flying around, blasting things. That game was super fun. The companion to that was Stellar Seven, which is like a spiritual successor to to, to Battle Zone. Yes. Stellar, Stellar Seven was so freaking great. I love game. Both of those games were like they felt like they felt like different theaters of the same alien war. You know, it was <laughs> it was it was so it was so fantastic. And then one more game I'm just gonna throw out real quick. And this is a game I never played on the Apple IIe, but my friends had it on the C64. And this is a game called Crush, Crumble, and Chomp. And this was a a kaiju game. You you took on the role of a giant movie monster, like a Godzilla or a King Kong or a robot or something like that. And you just marched through the city and just basically smashed stuff up and ate people and, you know, try to stomp on tanks and all that. And it was super fun to, to watch people play. I never got to play it all that often, but it was, it was super cool. So if you just want to run through your list and just name drop the games that mattered to you, go ahead and do it. Cause I want to make sure that about every other game that you guys mentioned, but I had some others too. Rambo. F-15 Strike Eagle, uh, Movie Mogul, Blue Mask, yeah. <laughs> Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one. Come on. Yes, Dude, that, that game was, was my <laughs> first next one, yeah. Holy crap, that game was awesome. <laughs> so good. Was that the one you could shatter? more the... fun they had anyway. Yeah, and, and could you shatter the backboard yes, in that one? Good. Yeah, <laughs> terrific. It was so good. Oh, my God, that was so good. I forgot about that one until you just mentioned it. That was so good. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, any more, Tom? Uh, just Agent USA, which I love. I, yeah, I, I know that like <laughs> that game was like so simple that like people just played it once and forgot it. But I would I would just play that game forever. Oh my god, it was that's so fantastic. <laughs> Joe, Joe, any any other uh, games on your list? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was uh, an election game that they had. Uh, it was a very simple, early presidential election, and you would invest resources in different regions of the country and. 
Um, it was, I played it, um, but I was always like really upset about how limited it was. And it used to bother me. I was like 12 or 13 and I was like, this is terrible. This should be so much better. Uh, Chris, any more on your list? Yeah. Um, Wizardry is up there simply because it was the first PC game I can remember playing. Dune, uh, the the OG real-time strategy game. Mm-hmm. Yep. Fantastic. Before uh, there was Warcraft, there was Dune. There's a game called Mule. Yes, I know oh, Mule. Yeah. I never played Mule. Never played it. it. This is the one that got away from me. And, and it's kind of a white whale. Like, I have avoided playing it simply because I think it played its time. It was the ancestor of the RTS genre, yeah. uh, programmed by Danielle Button, who eventually became Danielle Barry uh, after a sex change, early trans icon in the industry. In the PC gaming press at the time, it had this godlike status, and yeah. I never saw it in a store, never had the chance to buy it. It deserves a status. It's an exceptional game. I don't think it actually came to the Apple II series, but it was a big on C64. And my friends with C64s played it, loved it, were not afraid to let me know about it. I've largely gone through my list, but you know what? There's a series of side-scrolling action games that I would love to, to give some love to. First of them is, I think this actually may have been an arcade port, but there was a game called Choplifter. Oh, yeah, mm. that's great. You could turn, you could decide which way you're facing, flying forward or backwards. You're just like raiding these places, blasting them, getting the, the hostages coming out, dropping back off again. Another game that was like it, much more advanced, called Rescue Raiders. And yep. Rescue Raiders was basically, it's a big, long 2D thing where it's like, you've got to destroy enough stuff in the other side's lines to build. Every time you destroy stuff, you build up money. You build up enough money, you could order like vehicles of your own, like tanks and engineers and Jeeps with machine guns on it, that sort of thing. And you had to create a convoy strong enough to make it all the way across to the other end and detonate the other guy's like big machine. And that was the end of the level. And it was like action, it was strategy, it was tactics, it was all that roundup. And it was really super awesome. Along those lines, there's another one called Wings of Fury, which was this super awesome World War II dogfighting game. You were a, a Grumman uh, F6F Hellcat, I believe, on this little carrier. And you take off and you're in this big open 2D side-scrolling world. And there are just fortified islands. There are planes flying around. You basically got to wipe out everything. But how you do it is up to you. You can make sortie after sortie and that sort of thing. And it was just really open-ended, but it was a super fun action game that was very enormously fun to play. And then the last one would be Captain Goodnight in the Islands of Fear, which I believe was Apple, right? I believe that was Apple exclusive. And that was, again, it was like, you're Captain Order Goodnight, runs. this this suited hero, and you've got to get to this evil overlord's like island and take it out. But like, there are a couple different like games. Like there was the part of the game where you flew in a jet and knocked out radar installations. And there's the part of the game when you're driving in a Jeep. And there's a part of the game when you're running along. And it's just always like these different kinds of side-scrolling things. But there was a countdown clock. It was like a 24-hour countdown clock. And every time you died, you lost like an hour. And so you're trying to get to the end of it before time ran out. And it was just a, a fun, goofy game. It was, you know, kind of whimsical. It was a lot of fun. I love that game dearly. So really, really good stuff. At this point, I think we're coming to the end of our episode. So Yeah, well, we, we've gotten here without anybody mentioning Leisure Suit Larry, which is a victory. I think that just about brings us to the end of this episode. So on behalf of myself and Chris and Tom and Joe, thank you to everybody for listening to this episode of Moments of Truth. And we will see you next time. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. 
This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhardt. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. And then we'll go from there into the uh, the thunder round, which I love that. It's like, it's not lightning, it's just thunder. It's heavier than lightning and not as fast. So... <laughs>